I'm Tess Vigland, and as we work, remote work is on our minds. It's wonderful. I choose to interact with people how I want to. If I don't want to turn my camera on or, you know, and be seen, I don't have to turn my camera on. This is As We Work from The Wall Street Journal, a show about the changing workplace and everything you need to know to navigate it. Coming up on the show, summer's over, the kids are off to school, and adults are, by and large, being summoned back to the office, regardless of whether they want to go. We cover a lot of numbers here at the Journal, but here's one to drop your jaw. Just 3% of Black knowledge workers want to return to the office full-time. 3% versus 21% of white knowledge workers. That's according to a 2021 survey from the Future Forum. Coming up, we're going to explore why Black and other minorities and disadvantaged groups might feel particularly reticent about going back to the office. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. If the remote work revolution has taught us nothing else, it certainly has taught us that many, many, many people do not particularly enjoy spending their days at the office. An ADP survey from last spring found 64% of workers would consider quitting rather than return to the office full time. You can imagine plenty of reasons for this. Some are parents with childcare issues. Some are still worried about contracting COVID. Some dread returning to a long commute. And some just no longer want the pressure of having to prove they're working every hour of the day. But some workers say they have far more deeply rooted reasons for not wanting to return to the office. They say that because of their race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, or other factors, they're treated like outsiders in the workplace, regularly suffering slights small and large. In a moment, we'll talk with a consultant who helps companies tackle these kinds of diversity and inclusion issues about how these slights, often called microaggressions, can affect workers throughout their careers. First, we hear from a transgender woman who has her own story about why returning to the office led to a big career decision. I'm Jennifer Wamling. I'm from Rochester, New York. I am a reporting analyst for a company in the staffing industry. My previous workplace was a, an organization in the nonprofit sector. Um, I started working there in 2015 um, and only just recently left that position in April of this year of 2022. I started to transition uh, while working for this organization. I came out at work in May of 2019. So from November 2015 through, you know, May of, of 2019, all of my coworkers, you know, addressed me with my dead name and with masculine pronouns. A dead name is the name that a trans person used to go by before they transitioned. It's also sometimes known as an old name or a birth name. 
they were supposed to uh, address me with, you know, my actual name and with feminine pronouns, but it didn't always um, happen that way. There was a meeting uh, that we had about a month after I came out at work, so things were still a little bit fresh for folks. I was misgendered a few times, and the room was completely silent. Nobody said anything. There was no correction. Mid-March 2020, essentially the entire staff was home. And immediately the change was like, as far as, as, far as um, you know, being misgendered or, or being dead named was apparent because people didn't see me. When we, when we did return to the office, we had this, you know, kind of large picnic, like get together with the entire staff. At that gathering, uh, I was misgendered uh, twice. And once uh, we returned to work, then the misgendering and, and dead naming returned. Not, not as much as when I first transitioned, but it was like I had to repeat that whole like coming out process We reached out to Womling's former employer, who did not respond to our request for comment. In February of this year, there were a number of factors that, that contributed to my seeking out, you know, a new job. And um, at the top of that list was, you know, the the misgendering and, and dead naming that was happening. But an old manager of mine who now works for the company that I work for reached out and said, Hey, there's this, you know, reporting analyst position. Would you be interested in this? And I'm like, Oh my God, yes. Because immediately the first thing that she said was that it's fully remote. Working at the company that I work for now, it's wonderful. I mean, I choose to interact with people how I want to. If I don't want to turn my camera on or, you know, and be seen, I don't have to turn my camera on. I could just put mute on also and not have to worry about, hey, how does my voice sound? Um, my, you know, gender and my gender presentation has literally never come up. So being remote has made Jennifer Womling much happier in her job, and she's not alone. In a moment, we'll talk to a diversity consultant about why many underrepresented and minority workers say the return to the office is so difficult for them, and what companies can do to create a better environment. Stay with us. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. NetSuite by Oracle brings accounting, finance, inventory, and HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce costs everywhere. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. So head to netsuite.com slash wallstreet right now. When given the chance to have flexibility in their work environments, 87% of employees say they'll take it. That's according to McKinsey's American Opportunity Survey from June. And yes, that's almost everyone. But studies also show that certain segments of the workforce are more interested in remote work than others. 
women fall into that category, and so do underrepresented and minority groups. We mentioned the Future Forum earlier in the show, and another of their surveys showed that 88% of Asian workers, 83% of black workers, and 81% of Hispanic or Latino workers want flexibility in where they work, including work from home. Dr. Tiffany Jana works with companies on their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Jana, who uses they-them pronouns, is also the author of Subtle Acts of Exclusion, How to Understand, Identify, and Stop Microaggressions. They're here to help us understand some of the unique reservations some minority and other groups have about returning to the office. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Let's start by explaining a phrase that we hear a lot these days, microaggressions in the workplace. How would you define microaggression? I define microaggressions as the words and the behaviors and sometimes the unspoken expressions that we initiate in the workplace or anywhere that cause people to be pushed further to the margins. So microaggressions are often associated with unconscious biases that we have with protected categories or demographic identities. And it is the things that we say or the subtle things that we do that make people feel like they don't belong or like they're not normal or like something is wrong with them. Hmm. Well, we just heard from a trans woman who talked about being misgendered or dead named. That is, you know, being called by her birth name rather than her new actual name. What are some of the stories you've heard or microaggressions you yourself have experienced? Oh, absolutely. So when I founded one iteration of my company, my co-founder was a cisgender, heterosexual white male. And anytime we walked into a room together, people just assumed that he was, you know, the owner of the company or the boss or the superior, and they would address him accordingly. Meanwhile, I was the founder of the company. I had had a company, that company eight years before he was ever brought mm. on board, and I was technically his superior. People had difficulty, you know, sort of seeing that. You see it very frequently with uh, gender minorities in the workplace. You know, people associate assigned female at birth or femininity as somehow subordinate. And when it's time to take notes or go get the coffee or clean up after the the break room, people just invite or expect a, a woman or a feminine identified person to do that. Yeah. What would be some other examples that you could give us um, that people might not even think about? Uh, people of color, you know, often get their hair touched by uh, people who just, you know, think it's beautiful or just curious about it. But it's, you know, we are not pets. It is not appropriate to touch our hair. Um, if you happen to be one of only a few Asian people in the workplace or a- any other ethnic minority, people confuse you for your colleague. They call you by someone else's name because they haven't bothered to actually learn the contours of your face. So there are lots of little ways that, you know, just because you are different than the, the majority are different from the person who is initiating the subtle act of exclusion, which is my preferred moniker for microaggressions. Um, subtle active exclusion? Yeah, subtle active hmm. exclu- exclusion, because microaggression itself sounds... Sounds small. Right, exactly. And it's not, it's not small. It's just often subtle. So Tiffany, walk us through what the impact is of working in that kind of environment. What does it do to you as an employee, as a person? It is, you know, each individual instance is not egregious, is not the worst thing that happens in the world. But the problem is that people who are the subjects of subtle acts of exclusion are 
on the receiving end of these things on a perpetual basis. And so what it does is it just causes you to constantly have your guard up, to constantly be skeptical of the motives of people around you. It's exhausting. I know many, many people of all different ethnicities and genders and sexual orientations who've left their workplaces because of the onslaught of microaggressions in the workplace. They just couldn't take it anymore. It was so incredibly toxic that it just made them ill. So let's talk about kind of the context of this in this in this era of mass remote work. Um, There was a survey last year from the Society of Human Resource Management uh, that found that around half of black workers said they prefer to do their job outside the workplace compared with 39 percent of white workers. Why do you think that is? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is it. The microaggressions are greatly minimized when you can work outside of the workplace. It's so difficult to uh, assign blame for these things because people are just not culturally fluent, not realizing that they're doing it. That doesn't make it any less impactful or any less real for the people experiencing it. So, um, you know, people of color would rather work at home because I can control the environment. I'm not going to have to pass by you and your subtle looks and the weird comments that you make about my protective hairstyle, for instance, because I don't have to go to the water cooler. I don't have to pass you in the break room. We are literally only engaging in the context of meetings or Zooms or phone calls, which tend to be much more controlled around time, content, agenda. And so it is a safer environment. And just that ability to, you know, to to decompress between structured meetings or assignments is incredibly powerful. If I can go and, you know, play with my little Yorkie, (laughs) you know, hug my cat. (laughs) Of the workers you've talked to, the people you've worked with, have they seen remote work having an actual positive impact on their careers versus just avoiding a negative workplace? Oh, absolutely. Because when you take a remote working opportunity, it decreases the stress load so much that people are able to produce more. They're able to, to, to just be more mentally free without the distractions of microaggressions, insults, you know, small talk. Some, you know, the introverts are loving it, right? Yeah. <laughs> the introverts didn't want to talk to you anyway. And so they're <laughs> having the opportunity to just do their work and they are advancing. And so, yes, people are thriving. But what about potential downsides if you're not in the office with your coworkers and your superiors? Um, there is something called proximity bias, where people who are remote may not get as much uh, support or shots at promotion because they're not in person. What are some possible negatives for your career? Proximity bias is real. And for the folks who prefer uh, to go into the office, there will be a tendency to want to, you know, promote and create more opportunities for the people that you can see uh, for, you know, managers that have been sort of traditionally come up through the ranks. The idea that folks are showing up in the office, you know, might communicate to them a sense of of loyalty and a sense of being a harder worker. And we've got to reprogram those management expectations. We have to make the decision to, to do their performance reviews based on the work that they're doing as opposed to the other things that are nice to haves, but not actually essential to the task at hand or the job that is required. So what are the options then, particularly if a lot of those uh, experiencing this are from minority groups? I mean, remote work is there, but then you have these possible downsides, at least until leaders fix that proximity bias issue. Uh, What do you do? What we have cultivated in the United States in particular is that the greatest diversity has tended to be concentrated at the lowest levels of the organization. And in many organizations, those ended up being more like, you know, either entry level positions or frontline jobs that are hard to make remote. Remote working affords 
organizations the opportunity to diversify in ways that were much harder for them before. So we can intentionally use the remote force, the remote workforce opportunity to hire uh, diverse workers who tend, you know, particularly as knowledge workers to prefer the remote opportunity. And we can leverage that as an opportunity to gain the demographic diversity that we have been trying to ratchet up over the years. And the more we're able to demonstrate that the highest levels of leadership can also function remote, we can show pathways to opportunity to growth within the organization for people who enter at other levels. But I wonder if we are looking at unintended consequences, uh, whether it's conceivable that allowing all these people to work from home, and particularly if they are minorities, that that ends up letting companies just not deal with diversity issues. Well, until companies actually show up and do much better by listening to what the people actually need, I, I'm not, I don't think that that's the worst thing in the world. Mm. I would rather see people who are equity-seeking thriving in an environment of their own creation than continuing to be abused in the context of the workplace. And that's exactly what's happening. Allowing people's colleagues to microaggress them, to initiate subtle acts of exclusion and failing to have any consequences for that is, you know, is tantamount to corporate abuse. It is unacceptable. And what about uh, some of the work from home disparities that we've been talking about? Um, I know you work with companies to address some of those. What's your advice, Ben? Uh, And do you have any examples that you could share? We have to create the intentional um, opportunities to connect as humans. So at my company and the companies that, you know, that we advise, we encourage people to put on the calendar regular opportunities for engagement that have nothing to do with the work. So not just five minutes before the meeting or just going around and saying our pronouns and what we ate for breakfast, but intentionally setting aside a couple of hours a week for conversations that have nothing to do with work, where we just freeform as if we were in a room on, you know, on a lunch break and just um, spending time together. The, you know, the whole idea of team building, right? That's something that's been around for a really long time Mm -hmm. becomes much more important when you've got these remote environments. So we have to treat remote workers like normal workers and just create the the platform and the avenue and the opportunities for them to show up um, as people, as who they are, and recognize that those opportunities still need to be optional. Because, I came here to do the job and the job is the job. I don't necessarily have to engage. Like we have these opportunities for people to connect as humans, but we don't force anyone to come to them. Do you have any examples of a company that you worked with where, you know, they, they were able to make some changes and, and got some results and, and how did that go for them? I, I mean, I never, I don't like to name names sure. because I do have everyone's clean and dirty laundry at my disposal. <laughs> but, but we started working with one uh, client that has hundreds of workers across um, many states. The first thing that had to happen was we had to look at, you know, what was the the legacy of the in in house environment that was happening before the pandemic, and there was some toxicity that was. People were kind of aware of it, but it did translate over um, into the remote work a little bit. So creating an opportunity to air those grievances and talk about what we didn't like about the in-person environment and how that might have translated into the remote environment gave us an avenue to clear out those cobwebs and create a new way. They did actually create a culture of uh, of really checking in deeply before meetings. So they, you know, that the, there's nothing wrong with doing the five or ten minute check-in before. So they were doing that ahead of time. Um, But they now have basically demonstrated to the entire organization that 
it's not just uh, lip service. We actually do care how you're doing. We care how you're feeling. And we're going to listen to that and respond. And so they're actually stopping themselves in real time and addressing the issue, not allowing things to fester so that they can move forward in a good way. And it's remarkable that they're, you know, they're tighter than ever. Tiffany, Jonna, thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Working from home, sometimes even from 3,000 miles away, means you may never see your coworkers in person. And that makes having a great headshot more important than ever, since it's what a lot of folks will remember about you. Especially if you're on a Zoom call, but you haven't showered, so you mute your video and all anyone sees is that little round circle with your face on it. So in a moment, we'll get some tips for today's headshot and how it could make a difference when recruiters scroll through your profile on LinkedIn. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. And finally today, our pro tip, are you ready for your close-up? If so, you might want to put down your phone and hire a professional photographer for a headshot that isn't in full sun with shadows under your eyes. The headshot has been a mainstay of business branding for almost as long as cameras have been around, but the expectations of our social media world are upending what that photo should look like. Callum Borchers from our Life and Work team is here with a new lens on the workplace headshot, and I've got my camera at the ready. Cal, when was your last photo session? Well, my most recent headshot was to become a columnist here at the Journal, but it's not a classic photo, right? It's one of those, you know, pointillism style yeah, dot drawings that we call a stipple. And it's still done by hand by an illustrator, but I was initially drawn with a suit and tie. And one of our editors said, you know, it's a little too buttoned up. I want him open collar. Well, we're going to go ahead and give you a a new actual headshot here. So if you could just turn toward me, look straight into the camera. Uh, I'm going to take a few test shots here. Okay, you got my good side? Yeah, Yeah. you're looking good. Okay, so why do we even need professional headshots anymore when everyone can do a selfie for free? Right. The selfie is free. And look, there are folks who are pretty good at it and they will say you don't need a professional headshot. But others say, you know, a standout headshot can really make a difference, even a small difference. You know, one photographer said, really, I'm going for what we call scroll stopping images. And we're just talking about (laughs) five extra seconds here. We're not talking about a long time. The theory is you've got, you know, picture picture a hiring manager who's just going through LinkedIn profile after profile and a striking headshot that makes them linger. It's not that you're hiring somebody on their looks per se. But that's five more seconds that you're reading somebody's resume. And maybe that's the difference between putting them in contention and tossing them in the discard pile. All right. uh, And now just turn a little to your left. Look off into the distance Mm. here. Okay. Yeah. How are the glasses framed? These are my my blue light blocker glasses. I like it. 
Okay, so I feel like I see a lot of uh, more kind of casual headshots these days, even even on LinkedIn, not that you know stiff smile against a gray background. How have they changed and why? Yeah, authenticity is the, the buzzword of the moment in headshot land. And what that can mean is an unconventional background, perhaps. I spoke with a, a man who took a photographer with him uh, to his favorite rock climbing place in New Mexico because he mm. said, the joy I feel in this place, I think, will come through in my smile, in my photo. I'm seeing more people showing tattoos, right? There was a conventional wisdom for a long time. If you had tattoos, you covered them up for business. That was what was professional. Not so much anymore. Maybe you're showing a little bit more of that personality. Um, I also have spoken with people of color who say I'm much more inclined to wear natural hair Mm. in photos now. And I think more broadly, as we come out of this pandemic phase, a lot of people seem to feel as though the the buttoned up and made up look that was uh, in fashion in the before times is just too stuffy for the way they're feeling right now. It doesn't mean it's time for a headshot in your PJs with your hair uncombed (laughs) or unwashed. But it just means we're in a little more business casual moment. And so we're seeing that in headshots, too. All right. Let's have you uh, rest your head on your hand a little bit. Look a little to the right. A little bit of the thinker. Yeah, there you, there you go. Perfect. Looking great. I'll get you uh, a couple of proofs uh, in a day or two. How much will I be charging you? Listen, the structure varies, but uh, some of these photographers are charging even starting just for the session $1,500. That was sort of on the high end that I saw. There's a photographer named Peter Hurley who is regarded as one of the tippy-top headshot photographers. And after that, that just gets you in the door. There are more modestly priced photographers, but by and large, the people I've spoken to who spent a lot of time and money say it's been worth it. Callum Borchers, thank you. Always a pleasure, Tess. Thanks for having me. Next time, Callum will be back with some of his reporting about an unexpected side effect of the return to office. Remember all those folks who didn't have a choice during the pandemic and had to go in while a lot of us worked from home? Well, now that their prodigal colleagues are returning, some of those people who'd been heading in the whole time are feeling left out. What does it mean for the future of those workers and the future of those companies? Like the show, tell your friends to subscribe, and give us a five-star review on your favorite platform. As We Work is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Charlotte Gartenberg is our producer. Jonathan Sanders is our booking producer. Scott Salloway is our supervising producer. Jessica Fenton is a sunny day by the ocean. And our sound engineer. Our music was composed by Hansdale Sue. Kateri Yoakum is The Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Tess Vigland. Thanks for joining us.